There you go. Our scripture this morning is going to come from the book of Exodus, chapter 24, verses 1 to 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you, Aaron, Nabadah, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with them. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses, Aaron, Nebedah, and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel went up and saw God of Israel. Under his feet was something like pavement made of naspas and lazareth, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. Well, good morning to everyone. Here in just a little while at this table, this cup will be raised and you will hear the words, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. These are probably words that many of us have heard many, many, many times as we celebrated communion. They're words that, of course, echo the words of Jesus at the Last Supper. And they echo the words that we heard in this passage today that were spoken at Mount Sinai by Moses. Uh, we as a congregation are, are moving through the book of Exodus right now, and we've, we've seen as the Israelites have been freed from slavery in Egypt, they've been led to Mount Sinai. Uh, they've been told, they've been given this vocation that they're going to be this kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And in the last few weeks, we've been looking at the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant, where God's going to lay out more specifically what this relationship is going to look like in relationship with him and under his And now it's time to seal the deal. Okay, it's time to ratify the covenant. It's time to officially confirm this agreement that's being acted by these two parties, Yahweh and the Israelites. So how do you do that? Okay, how do you seal a deal like this big? Uh, well, then, you know, think about it for ourselves. There's all kinds of ways that we as people mark covenantal ceremonies. I mean, there's these various rituals that surround covenant that then point to that covenant and say there's something important happening here. They give weight, they give significance. You don't have to look any farther than this large contingent of Germans we have with us today and others from around the country who are with us today, right? They're not, I love to think that they came here to worship just with us. That would be wonderful. I'm so glad they joined it. But they're here for a covenant, right? For the ratifying of a covenant between two people, Becca and Benny, who did that yesterday. There's lots of different ways you could do this. They could have just got married in a courthouse by themselves, but they've decided to do that here and then later on in Germany. And lots of people come out here 
have spent lots of energy and time to be here, and that gives weight, that gives significance, that says to these two people, something important is happening here. And we've got the same thing happening here. The way that happens here is through two things, through blood and through a meal. Let's first look at blood. As so often happens, if you've uh, prepared for a big day like a wedding, you know they start early, and this day starts early for Moses. He gets up, and he, he starts building, starts working with his hands, builds 12 pillars that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. He builds an altar. Uh, after he does that, then, they bring in the young bulls, and they sacrifice those bulls, Okay? These two parties, these two things represent these two parties, the pillars and the altar. The pillars represent Israel. The altar represents God. And they are going to be united by these blood bonds. And you think about it, blood bonds is one of the, the, the oldest traditions in humanity. I don't know. Uh, I was thinking about being a kid. I don't know if I ever actually did this. But I remember thinking uh, when, when I was with my friends, like if we really uh, wanted to seal the deal on a friendship, yeah. <laughs> You would combine your blood, right? And this actually, in the 50s and 60s, I think this, this actually happened where, you know, kids would cut their finger, and then they would go to their friend, and they would combine their blood. By the time I was a kid, thankfully, there had been enough health education campaigns, right, to make you aware that's probably not the best idea. But you still had that thought, like, if I wanted to show ultimate, my ultimate bond with this person, it would be to combine our blood. And so we had this scene where the young bulls are slaughtered, uh, and then Moses takes all this blood, blood's going to be a big part of our passage, and he splits this in half, okay? Takes half that blood, and he splashes it on the altar, okay? We're not, we're not 100% sure what is happening here, but it probably is God's way of saying that he accepts the, this, uh, this covenant. He, in many ways, this is God's way of saying, I do, I'm in, I'm in on this covenant. The blood also seems to be symbolizing something else, something about Israel's atonement for sin. So there's this cleansing element to this blood, Okay, blood in the Old Testament has a couple different functions, but one of those functions is to cleanse. One way, a uh, helpful way to think about blood in the Old Testament is to think about detergent, right? Detergent has a cleansing power. It not only has the power to cleanse people, individuals, communities, but it also has the power to cleanse spaces. The tabernacle will be cleansed with blood. Okay, Moses does that. He splashes the blood on the altar. He then takes the book of the covenant. So, you know, he takes this long very odd section of law that we looked at last week. And he reads it aloud, and they respond like this, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. So now God has, in a sense, given his I do. Now the people give their I do. And Moses now takes the blood, that other blood that's been split up from the bulls, and he begins to splash it on the people. He begins to sprinkle it on the people with these words, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Again, we're not told exactly what the meaning behind it, but it's probably the same blood from the same bulls has now been spread on both the altar and the people, showing that they have been combined, they've been bound together by this blood. And again, there's this other, this atoning significance, this cleansing significance. Okay, so binding and forgiving, which sounds odd to us, right? I mean, if I, can, if I were to walk through this aisle right now and fling blood on you, I can imagine it would not be appreciated, right? In our minds, the blood on us, blood on our clothes, is usually an indication that there's a problem. Jerry Seinfeld has this comedy sketch about laundry, and he talks about how in television there, there are these detergents that advertise themselves as being able to take out blood stains. 
And he says, you know, is this a violent image to anyone? Like bloodstains? I mean, come on, you've got a t-shirt with all these bloodstains on it? Maybe laundry isn't your biggest problem right now. <laughs> Great line. Blood to most of us, whether it's your blood or somebody else's blood, blood on your clothes, it, it indicates in our minds a problem. And again, like I said, there's a lot of blood in this text today. I was reflecting on this uh, this week as I was going around, and I kept, uh, the song that kept playing in my head was a song I heard many times as a kid. I'm sure we've sung it here, and I'm sure you've heard it. There's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. When I hear, I just, can you hear the basses coming in? Like, they have a great part on that song. And I was thinking, I know these songs, I know these words, I sang them a lot as a kid. I don't think I remember thinking of blood being powerful. Again, I mostly thought about blood as something that was indicative of a problem, something to be avoided. And yet blood is at the center of this covenantal ceremony between God and Israel, divided into two bulls, splashed on an altar, splashed on the people. And in fact, in Hebrew, to make a covenant is actually more literally to cut a covenant because the slaughtering of animals is a central part of covenant making, which again is kind of strange to us, right? Why do we have to slaughter animals to make a covenant? Isn't this a little barbaric. I mentioned last week as we were looking at these kind of strange case laws that there's some of those laws I'm very glad do not apply to us, right? Just to be clear. Uh, I'm also, I also try to make the case to you that some of those laws actually shine a mirror on us, actually have something to teach us. See, we tend to look back often at history, often at Old Testament law and think, that's regressive. There's nothing I can learn. And yet, I hope we saw last week there is things that we can learn here. So we've got this scene of a of a knife and a throat and an animal. And we're like, what is going on here? But think about it. Think about it. Is it strange for our society? Uh, it's, it's strange for our society to think about a single animal being killed by a knife that spent its life on pasture, but the killing of thousands and thousands of animals a day at a modern slaughterhouse, raised at feedlots, killed by electrocution, is a sign of progress. I didn't grow up hunting. I started hunting when I lived on a farm in Illinois, and I, it, for me, the first time I killed a deer is just completely seared in my memory. I will never forget this. In fact, almost every time that I've participated in taking the life of an animal, uh, whether it's by hunting or raising that on my, by myself on a farm, I found it to be a very powerful experience. I found it to be an emotional experience. I remember the sadness I felt when I shot that deer. It was sadness mixed with gratitude of the provision of the animal, mixed with wonder. Because you realize, as you come close, you realize you're dealing with something powerful, something sacred, the life and blood of an animal. I've never once picked up a pound of beef in the supermarket, wrapped in plastic with black plastic on the bottom, and basically felt anything. I've not felt sadness, I've not felt gratitude, and I certainly have not felt wonder. For thee, that, that, that pound of beef is just a material thing there for my material consumption and pleasure. See, we live in many ways in a world that's been desacralized. That is, as some people would say, it's been dis disenchanted. It's lost its wonder. But here, I want to show you, here now, you're stepping into a world which is filled with wonder, which life and covenants and blood is sacred and they're powerful. Blood has the power to bind, and blood has the power to cleanse. After Moses sprinkles the blood on the people, he, along with his brother Aaron, Aaron's sons, and 70 elders, 
head up the mountain. Okay, they get up about, uh, I love this passage because there's lots of mountain climbing, constant <laughs> mountain climbing. They get up halfway the mountain. As one commentator says, halfway up, as it were, between earth and heaven, they have an experience in which for a moment heaven comes to earth. I love this idea of kind of coming up the mountain, heaven and earth coming together. What do they see halfway up this mountain? Well, according to our text, they see God, which whenever I read that and when I read it now, I think you can't do that, right? We're going to learn in just a little bit in Exodus when Moses encounters God that you can't see God's face and live. So what's going on here? Well, look at the, can you put up that first slide, Ron? Look carefully at the text here because I think this is Important and interesting. Let's read this together. Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli as bright blue as the sky. Okay, so that we get this impression they're up halfway the mountain. God somehow comes in the form of a person, but all they can see is God's feet. Right? There, there's these feet and there's Look at the language here. It's something like, um, you know, pavement underneath. They describe the pavement. And you can see the writer, the author of Exodus, is struggling to describe what was seen here. It's something like, I don't really have exactly the words to describe it, but it's something like pavement made with this precious stone, this deep, intense blue color, as bright as the blue as the sky. It's something like that. It was so, so stunning. I can't tell you exactly what it is. All I can tell you is what it was like. Maybe you've caught a glimpse of something like that. So splendid, so stunning. Maybe a, a work of art in a museum. Maybe a, a landscape out west. Maybe something in nature where in that moment words fail you. Where the closest thing you can say is it was, it was something like, but even that doesn't do justice. And what are they looking at? They're looking at the feet of God. They're looking at feet of God on a pavement. And when they see that, they're overwhelmed, they're startled. We see the Israelites look very small right now compared to God. And here on the mountain, which will in many ways mimic the tabernacle, which we'll turn to next week, uh, there's all these boundaries that have been set. Okay? As you go up to the mountain, only certain people can go up uh, to certain places. So most of all the Israelites are at the bottom of the mountain, and they look up and they see something that looks like consuming fire at the top, but they can't go up. Some people can go up at least halfway up the mountain. And so you can see these people have edged right up to this kind of liminal space between heaven and earth where wonder and danger collide. And what happens? They have a meal. Right? These people, they eat and drink in the presence of God. They are both aware of the majesty and holiness of God, aware that they are in a place that's so stunning it eludes words. They struggle to describe what they're seeing, and yet they remain safe. They remain unharmed. They're able to have a picnic on the side of the mountain in the presence of God. Why? Because they've been sprinkled by the blood. Jump ahead with me a thousand years later to another meal. This one in Jerusalem. And this itinerant prophet preacher, wonder, miracle worker named Jesus. He arrives in Jerusalem, and it's Passover. And so he's going to celebrate Passover with his 12 disciples, to celebrate this meal that we looked at a couple months ago that celebrates the great liberation from slavery in Egypt. And at that meal, Jesus is going to take that cup, and he's going to say to his disciples, this is my blood of the covenant, 
which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And these words are familiar to us, right? We've, we've been resting them in this passage. They echo the words at Mount Sinai between, uh, that were spoken between this covenant between Yahweh and Israel. But there's a shift, right? What's the shift there? Jesus doesn't say, this is the blood of the covenant. He says, this is my blood of the covenant. See, this blood that seals the covenant with God's people is no longer now the blood of bulls shed on Mount Sinai, but the blood of Jesus himself, which will be shed on the cross the next day. Like there's power, there may be power in the blood of bulls, but it is nothing like the power in the blood of Jesus. See, the power of bulls, it has the power to cleanse this little, small, fledgling nation that's wandering through the wilderness. It can, it can bind them, it can cleanse them. But this blood, this blood is something different. I love how the writer of Colossians describes it this way. This blood has the power to reconcile all things Hey, this blood has the power to bind all things, whether on earth or heaven, to God. Just think about that. We just read that as like a kind of a throwaway line. All things, all things in heaven, all things on earth, everything. This blood has the power that is only can be understood on a cosmic scale. There is power in this blood. It has cosmic significance. It has significance to us as a people, and it has significance to you. Let's read one more passage in Hebrews. Because the writer of Hebrews must be thinking about this sprinkling of the blood when he writes this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body. And since we have a great, great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Okay, draw, look at that line, having our hearts sprinkled, clearly echoing what's happening here at Mount Sinai. That blood, the writer of Hebrews is talking about, has power, has power to release forgiveness, power to cleanse a guilty conscience, power to wash our bodies with pure water. There's a scene in Shakespeare's tragedy Macbeth in which Lady Macbeth is, is consumed with guilt after the murder of King Duncan, and she's sleepwalking. And in the scene, as she walks, she rubs her hands. She's desperate to erase the guilt that's consuming her, but she can't, no matter how much she rubs her hands. And finally, seeing a spot of blood on her hands, she says this, Here is the smell of the blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Try as she might, Lady Macbeth cannot be cleansed of the guilt. Nothing, she says, not even all the perfumes of Arabia can cleanse her of this guilt, can cleanse her of what's on her hands. And yet the writer of Hebrews says, there's something that has the power to cleanse and wash like nothing else. The sprinkled blood of Jesus. And because of the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus, you're okay with God. Because you've been made okay with God, Two things can happen. One, you and I with grace-motivated hearts can say along with the Israelites this, we will do all that the Lord has said. We will obey. See, that's, that, that echoes the words that Jesus says on the mountain before his ascension when he tells his disciples to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. Right? This, this wonder, as we step into this world of wonder and sacredness, we should be moved by joy to obedience, 
to say along with the Israelites, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Secondly, here's one more thing we can do. We can climb the mountain. Because there's power in Jesus' blood, you can now climb the mountain and enter into the presence of God. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. You can now approach this hot spot of God's presence. Jesus has made possible to approach what is otherwise unapproachable. Right? All these places we see in the Bible, Mount, uh, Mount Sinai, the tabernacle, the temple, there's all these places where boundaries are set. You can only go so far, and those boundaries are to protect people. Because normally the presence of God is too much. As you come into the space, it becomes too much. They're places of wonder, but they're dangerous places. But now this is what makes this passage so beautiful. The writers of Hebrews say, hey, don't hang out at the base of the mountain. Don't even just go halfway up the mountain. Go all the way up. Go right into the presence of God. And don't do it with fear. Do it with confidence, with assurance knowing that you have been cleansed and washed by the blood of Jesus, knowing that because of Jesus, you're okay. As we hear the words spoken from the table again, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let us remember there's power in this blood. There's power to bind us to our creator in a new covenant. There's power to cleanse a guilty conscience. And therefore, let us draw near to God. Let us climb the mountain and eat and drink in the presence of God.